are in the midst of a Christmas series that we're wrapping up today. Um, this five-part series Kevin and I laid out back in November, and we've been looking at different familiar aspects of the Christmas season, but we've been trying to see them through a gospel lens. And so we've looked at Christmas spirit and Christmas light, and today we're going to look at Christmas gifts. If you would open your Bible, I want us to hear this passage from Matthew 2 one more time as we consider this last dimension of the Christmas season and how the story of Jesus changes and infuses our perspectives as faithful men and women. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We have seen his star as it arose, and we have come to worship him. Herod was deeply disturbed by their question, as was all of Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law. Where did the prophets say the Messiah would be born, he asked them. In Bethlehem, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. O Bethlehem of Judah, you are not just a lowly village in Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod sent a private message to the wise men, asking them to come see him. At this meeting, he learned the exact time when they first saw the star. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child, and when you... Find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way. Once again, the star appeared to them, guiding them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house where the child and his mother Mary were, and they fell down before him and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh but when it was time to leave they went home another way because God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod let's pray father we're grateful for this morning we're grateful for this special season the season that we remember the gift of Jesus to each and every one of us to this church but also to the whole world And this morning, as we consider what it means not just to receive gifts, but to give gifts, I pray that you would give me the gift of preaching and teaching, and that you would pour through me a word that is faithful to who you are and who you're calling us to be. And I pray that you would give us all the gift of open hearts, that we would hear your voice, that we would be transformed, and we would become certain kinds of gift givers in the world men and women who reflect you in all that we do. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite Christmas traditions every year, one of my favorite Christmas gifting traditions, is that of receiving Christmas cards. Every year I always look forward to our mailbox at home filling up with Christmas cards from from different friends and family, uh, ranging from the well-posed picture by the fire 
to the not-so-polished picture of children screaming in Santa's lap. Uh, not your children, of course, other, other people's children. In fact, this whole gift-giving of Christmas card tradition is a, is a very old tradition. It, it's a tradition that goes back several hundred years, and the picture that you see behind me is the first ever commercially produced Christmas card. In 1843, there was an English nobleman who hired an artist to sketch a picture with him and his family at a dinner table, and then he mass-produced this card, made about 2,000 copies, and sold them. And, and ever since then, there has been this tradition of men and women giving and receiving the gift of Christmas cards to each other, to people with whom they're in relationship. And that's really what gifts are all about. That's really what the gift of Christmas cards or any gift that we give to another person is all about. It's, it's about recognizing that relationship that exists between you and that person. That the ideal foundation for any gift is this foundation of relationship and connection. And the reason I say ideal um, is because of a study that I read about recently related to gift giving and the giving of Christmas cards that made me reconsider what gift giving is really all about. In 1974, there was a sociologist by the name of Philip Coons, and he conducted the following experiment with Christmas cards. He got the addresses of 600 strangers, people that he had never met before, and he got 600 pieces of Christmas stationery, and he hand-wrote them a note, attached a picture of his family, and he sent this out to 600 strangers. And then he sat back and he waited. And it didn't take but five days before the first of those strangers sent him back a Christmas card in return. And what started as a slow trickle picked up momentum, and there were days where Dr. Koontz was receiving up to 12 to 15 Christmas cards from this pool of complete strangers. Even a year later... In that first year, he received over 200 cards of those 600 strangers that he had sent cards to. And then the next year, what was interesting, he didn't send any cards, and there were still some of those strangers who sent him a card again. But this time, some of them even wrote personalized notes. Notes like, we hardly ever see you anymore. <laughs> or my personal favorite, we desperately miss your father. I don't know if Dr. Kuntz knew that he had lost his father in the last year, but these people were grieved by that loss. Up to 15 years after Kuntz had conducted this experiment, there were still some of those 600 strangers who were still sending him Christmas cards. Now, there's a lot of layers to this experiment that we could discuss and unpack if we were in a, a classroom setting, but the one layer that really struck me came when I was reading the report by this author of the study, and there was something that the author of this report, who was just reporting the study, said that struck me. He talked about the perspective of the mailman who delivered cards to Koontz that year, 1974. And he said that that mailman must have thought that he was delivering 
cards to someone who either had a really big family or who was some kind of celebrity. And he said this, because, and I quote, Kuntz appeared to have a lot of people who loved him. Kuntz appeared to have a lot of people who loved him. You see, to the casual observer who was watching this flow of Christmas cards into the mailbox of Kuntz in 1974, they would have been led, they would have been led to believe that it appeared as though he had a lot of relationships, a lot of people who loved him, a lot of people with whom he was connected. But to somebody behind the scenes, to somebody who went below the surface, they would know that there was a lot more going on than what first met the appearance. They would know something that we all need to be reminded of, and that is this. Gifts can be deceiving based on why the gift is given. Gifts can be deceiving based upon why a gift is given. And it's that truth that I think we should remember this morning as we read this very familiar text in Matthew. Because in our text this morning, we have the story of two gift givers who seem to appear to be the exact same kind of gift giver. But if you go below the surface, if you go behind the scenes, what you soon realize is that we're dealing with two very different kinds of gift givers. And it is in paying attention to that difference that I think we gain insight into what it means to be disciples in our world today as we end one year and as we begin another. You see, in our text this morning, we have those first gift givers, those more famous gift givers that Christmas tradition has kind of elevated to be these infamous characters in the story. And while they're very infamous, while they are well-known, they are also very mysterious. These magi, these wise men. Because there's a lot that we don't know about these magi. We don't know exactly what their role entailed. We don't know if they were priests or magicians or possessors of supernatural power. Based on the way that this word gets used throughout the New Testament, it, it's easy to believe they probably possess some kind of unique wisdom, which is where that tradition of wise men comes from in a common translation that we read. And due to the way that they get introduced into the story and the way that they appear in Jerusalem, it appears as though they have some kind of um, astro astronomical bend to what they do, some kind of astrology emphasis in their role, but we don't know exactly what their role entailed. In addition, we don't know exactly where they're from. Matthew tells us they're from the east, but that's kind of like telling someone in Lebanon, Tennessee, that you're from the east. You could mean Knoxville or New York or China. We don't know what from the east means, whether that means Persia or Arabia or Babylon. We're not exactly sure where these magi are from. And we're not completely sure about how they know about this king of the Jews. Because they show up to Jerusalem, but they miss the mark by five miles because Bethlehem, which is five miles south of Jerusalem, is actually the place they were supposed to go. So they have some knowledge, but we don't know where they got that knowledge and what exactly 
they knew about this king of the Jews. And finally, maybe to burst the biggest bubble of them all, we don't know how many there really were. Uh, Tradition says that there were three wise men because of gold and frankincense and myrrh, but I would be led to believe that it was probably a larger group who showed up due to the significance of this event and due to the stir that is caused in this scene. There's a lot of mystery surrounding these magi, these wise men. There's a lot that we don't know. And what's often tempting when we have these mysterious parts of a text is we can spend a lot of time speculating and trying to connect the dots that are there. And that's fun and good, and I enjoy that, and I'm an advocate of that. And trying to put together all of the pieces that Matthew doesn't completely tell us, but only I'm only a fan of that. I'm only an advocate of that if and when we pay attention to what Matthew does tell us about these magi. And he tells us why they come to Jerusalem in the first place, because they say it themselves. They ask where this king of the Jews has been born, because they have seen his star rise, and they have come so that they may worship him. The reason why the Magi show up, the reason why these wise men show up is so that they can worship this baby king who has been born. And that word for worship is a really important word in this story. It's a word that's basically a compound word of two different words, the word for towards and the word for kiss. So it literally means to kiss towards. So imagine a royal court scene with a king sitting on the throne, surrounded by all of his subjects, and imagine if a servant comes into that king and they were instructed to kiss the ring of the king or to kiss the ground in front of the king. What they would have to do to carry out this act would be to kneel or to lower their head, to bow in some way, and it was in that bowing that they were showing a sign of submission. They were showing a sign of reverence. They were showing the truth that they were not the ones on the throne, but someone else is on the throne. And what was often associated with worship, as the story plays out, we soon learn, is the act of gift-giving. That gift-giving often accompanied worship and showing reverence to another king on the throne. And that's what the Magi come to do. They they come to worship, to kiss towards, to to show reverence to the baby king who had been born. They come to worship. They come to give gifts, acknowledging that they are not on the throne and someone else is on the throne. And as the story plays out, these Magi, these wise men, they accomplish their mission. They accomplish their purpose to worship and to give gifts the king. But there's another gift giver in our story this morning who on the surface appears to be like the Magi, but who in fact it turns out is very, very different. From the very beginning of this chapter, Matthew wants us to know about this other person and when this whole series of events takes place. In the time of King Herod. 
Matthew does not want us to forget that there is another king on the throne when the baby king shows up. In the very first two verses of chapter 2, Matthew uses the word for king, but he uses it twice, and each time it's for a different person. There's King Herod, and now there is this baby who is born king of the Jews. From the very beginning of the telling of this story, he doesn't want us to forget that there is a clash of kings underway. And it's the tension of these two kings that really reveals the character of King Herod. Because as soon as he finds out that there has been a king of the Jews that's been born, his first reaction is fear. He is disturbed. He is troubled. No matter how you translate that word, basically King Herod is deeply bothered by the fact that there is another king on the scene. Because Herod knows what we all know about kings and thrones. There can only be one king on the throne. And the presence of another king means a threat to his rule, to his authority, to his kingdom, to his power. And so it only makes sense what he does. It it only makes sense the steps that he takes next. It only makes sense that he calls together the best of the best of Scripture the chief priests and the scribes, and he gets official confirmation of what the prophets have said about this Messiah who was supposed to show up, this anointed one, this royal king. And it only makes sense that he calls the Magi secretly to come to him to get official confirmation about what they had seen and when they had seen it. It only makes sense that he begins to put together a plot and a plan to get rid of this baby king. But the detail that I want us to pay attention to this morning is why Herod says he wants to know where the king is. He says to those magi that he wants them to go and give a careful search and to come back and to report to him about where the baby is so that I can go and worship him as well. So that I too can go and worship him. King Herod wants to go and worship this baby king. King Herod wants to go and show reverence and submission to this baby king. And the church says, yeah, right. We all know what's really going on here, right? King Herod is trying to use these magi as pawns in his greater plan to knock off this baby king so he can stay on the throne. And if you don't believe me, then read the very next passage where Herod takes out every baby in the region so that his power is not threatened, so that his throne is not infringed upon, so that he stays in power. And what is most shocking and disturbing about what he does here is the reason why he gives. He gives this false front of worship and gift-giving as a way to get his way. He uses the false front of reverence and honor to the king in order to keep himself as king. 
He uses the false front of gift-giving, but there's all kinds of strings attached to this plot that he is planning and trying to execute so that he can execute this baby king. You see, to the casual observer, it would appear as though Herod was a devout worshiper. It would appear as though Herod was a devout gift giver on the surface. But if you go behind the scenes, if you go below the surface, someone who was in the know, they would know that there's a lot more going on here. They would know what's really happening with King Herod. They would know that he has no interest in giving authentic gifts to this baby king. They would know that he is using the front of gift-giving really just to get his way. Because gifts can be deceiving depending on why the gift is given. And worship can be deceiving depending on why the person is worshiping. And, And it's that difference that I want to hold up for us this morning and uh, ask us to pay attention to. Because what we have is a story of two very different kind of worshipers and two very different kinds of gift givers. And it's in paying attention to that difference that I believe some questions are raised about the kind of worshipers and the kind of gift givers we're going to be that we have a choice of which path we're going to take, that that on the one hand, we can take the path of King Herod, who presents as though, who speaks as though he has interests in worshiping and bowing down and giving gifts to the king. But below the surface, behind the scenes, there's all kinds of strings attached. Below the surface, behind the scenes, there are some deep, dark motives driving everything that he is doing. And that's a path that we can take when it comes to, to worship, when it comes to gift giving. That we can choose that path of maybe presenting as though we're being devout, presenting as though that we're in submission, presenting as though that we're authentic gift givers. But behind the scenes, below the surface, we really want to stay on the throne. Behind the scenes and below the surface, we really want to keep things with us in charge. We have no interest in being transformed by the power of this king. And that's a path that we can take. But but there's this other path as well. There's this path that the Magi hold up to us. These, These outsiders who aren't even a part of the people of God, and yet they are open to God so much so that they travel hundreds of miles to get to this place just to see this king to give gifts and to bow and worship. And when they get there, that they drop to their knees in joy and adoration of this baby king who has arrived, and they submit, acknowledging that they're not the ones ultimately on the throne. There's no strings attached to what they're doing. They're offering this sincere and selfless gift to Jesus. And that's a way that we can go with our gift-giving and our worship as well. That we can be men and women who live with this openness to God, 
who, who live with this openness to wherever God may be leading us. And as we move through life and we meet Jesus along the way, whenever we do, we are filled with deep joy, deep worship, deep gratitude about the work that God is doing in our lives. And that's another path that we can take. Worship and gift-giving can be deceiving depending on why we're doing it in the first place. And so we're ending a year, and we're beginning a new year. And if you're like me, the end of a year and the beginning of a year is a time where I try to do some reflection about the year that I've had and about the year that I'm going to have. And I wanted to hold up this aspect of the text for us this morning because I think it forces us to ask some of those deeper, reflective questions about why we give our gifts, about why we choose to worship, about why we open ourselves to God, and if we are really opening ourselves to God. Because you can present a lot of ways, but behind the scenes, below the surface, in the darker corners of your heart, a lot of other things can be going on. But the reason why I want to ask that question and ask these questions as we end the year, because they're questions that I can't answer for you and you can't answer for me. What kind of worshiper am I going to be in 2019? What kind of gift giver am I going to be in 2019? What's really going on behind the scenes in my heart? And the very reason I want to ask some deeper heart questions, questions that only you and God can answer, is because it's that very place that God wants to touch and heal and transform us. The core of who we are. And if we believe anything about this baby King Jesus, this King who still sits on the throne, we believe that he has the power to do amazing work in our lives, not just on the surface, but in those deep heart places. And those are the places that I'm praying that will change in me next year, and I'm praying that they will change in you next year. And my prayer next year is that we would become a community of faith who is not transformed just on the surface, but who's transformed in the deepest places of our lives so that we can become authentic worshipers and gift givers to God, to each other, and to the world.